First Timothy chapter 3. As we continue our study through the book of Timothy, and we said that we, we got to chapter 3 for a pretty young church that we are, because we are an elderly church, uh, that our teaching over elders would be uh, a very important teaching for our church, and that we would spend a great deal of time on it, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to move through it uh, fairly slowly. Uh, I figured that you'll probably be here for the next three, four weeks for sure, um, because it's that important to the church. Who leads the church uh, is important, and scripture uh, deems it that way and has much say about it, and so we want to uh, spend the appropriate amount of time in it. Last week we spoke about verse 1 of chapter 3 and what it means uh, for a man who desires uh, to be an overseer or an elder or a pastor or a shepherd or a bishop. We talked about how those words are interchangeable um, and that he would desire a noble task. And I tried to spend some time helping us understand what kind of a task uh, he is desiring. Today we will begin our look at the qualifications of the men uh, who would hold those positions. So first, if you would desire it, if that's something after hearing what the noble task is, if that's something that you would desire, the scriptures then here in 1 Timothy 3, as it also does in Titus chapter 1, begins to list qualifications uh, that those men uh, must meet in order to hold this position. Now, there's a couple of important principles to grasp uh, as we, uh, not only to grasp, but also to hold on to, to hold on to tightly as we walk through this study. Let me read it first, and then I'll give you those two principles, uh, and then we'll move through this um, difficult passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Now we feel the controversy, right? Two important, two important principles. First, it should be said, and you should know, that the qualifications we see in this passage and that we will see for the next several weeks are character traits that we, as elders and you as people, should hope and wish that all of our men have. In other words, the only thing that would separate men as elders in our church would not be any of the qualifications except for there are men who don't desire to be an elder. Does that make sense? The rest of them, they would be totally qualified to be an elder. They just don't desire to be an elder. This passage is not making a case for men only to be different in their moral purity and lifestyle if they're going to be an elder. It's not the teaching here. 1 Peter chapter 4, 14-16 would say it this way. As obedient children, speaking to believers... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means those things that you used to do 
before coming to Christ. So don't be conformed to those anymore. But as he who called you is holy, you, me, also be holy in all of your conduct. And here's why. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a command to all believers. It's not a command that is exclusive to elders alone. So as a church, my hope as a pastor is that we would have men in this church who live out this passage. And then the ones who become elders are the ones who want to be elders. The second principle the grass would hold on to is that there are men who may be attending our church now or very well likely will be attending our church sometime in the future that will find themselves disqualified for eldership. They will. And that's why Paul writes to Timothy saying, here's the standard. Because there will be some who do not meet that standard. That's why this passage is difficult. Because there's anything that we as Americans don't like, it's what? Somebody telling me what I can and cannot do, amen? We don't like that. A new list of rules go up at work. Everyone stands around and eventually somebody says, well, they can't tell us to do that. I mean, we don't like that. And yet, in this passage, we're going to get a command from the scripture on, here's what your elders, pastors, shepherds, bishops, here's what they must be like. And that would mean, just like I am not a picture of health. Amen? Are y'all not aware of that? Like, I'm not a picture of health. I am not lacking the knowledge of how to be healthy. I choose to not eat the foods that I'm not, I choose to eat the foods I'm not supposed to eat, right? Right? I mean, like, like, I don't wake up and look at myself in the mirror and go, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> I know what happened. There, there was a standard set out. If you eat this kind of stuff, it results in this. And listen, it's no different when it comes to the traits that are called upon for holiness. You know what you're called to as a believer. It's written in the scriptures. But, let, can we have, are we honest in the church? There are those of us, and all of us at some point, have chosen to not do those things. And it results in consequences. Not eternal consequences for those in Christ, but real consequences for us in this life. And some of those consequences can rule you disqualified for eldership. Now here's the grace that I want you to hear as people. If you are a man who finds yourself disqualified for eldership, that does not mean, it does not mean, it does not mean you have no role in the church. Nor does it mean that you do not have a calling on your life in the local church. You do. Nothing can be further from the truth for someone to say, because you're disqualified as an elder, you have no role in the church. That is a lie. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 through 7 says it this way. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each, believers, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Listen, if you're a believer here, I don't care what your past was, if you have been redeemed in Christ, God, the creator of the universe, has given you a gift that you are called to use in the local church for the common good of the people. That's right. So don't find out and say, well, I'm not qualified to be an elder, so I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. It's not the case. You have a role. A man who is disqualified for the position of an elder can still teach. I will make the case they could even preach and serve and pray and worship and obviously play an important role in the church. They would just not be able to hold the title of overseer. So those two principles are crucial to grasp and hang on to as we walk through this text. So, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. If you have other translations, it may say blameless. Now, we know, based on common sense and just reading the Bible, that cannot mean sin-free. Because if that's what it means, I need to resign effective immediately. (laughs) That's not what it means. Instead, when you study the Greek here, it means that you do not have sin as a pattern of life. The literal translation of the Greek means nothing to take hold upon. That means there is nothing that the outsiders or other believers could look at your life and take hold of and say, this, you see this right here? This is a consistent pattern of your life that does not look like Scripture. That's what it means. And therefore they would look at you See this pattern of life that is anti-gospel, anti-scriptural, and say, how can you hold the title of overseer when you are consistent in this kind of sin? Now, let me help you out with that a little bit. Have you ever known anybody who you knew was lying because their lips were moving? (laughs) You ever known anyone like that? Some of you are looking at me and we may be thinking about the same person. How about a temper? How about a flirt? How about a foul mouth? A womanizer? A drunkard? Violent? Someone who constantly argues? A lover of money? A conceited and prideful person? How many of y'all have somebody pictured in your mind right now? Liars! Got two people? No one else has any? Okay. It can't be me. Or I can't be an elder. If you picture me, and, and, and that's true, then I cannot be an elder. If, if when you think of liar, you think of Jason. If you think of drunkard, you think of Jason. If you think of quarrelsome, you think of Jason. That means I'm not qualified to be an elder. Now, have I ever lost my temper? Yes. But I would hope that it is not the pattern of my life. You see the difference? That's crucial. Anyone who would desire to be an elder could not be someone that others could take hold upon in their life and say, this pattern of your life is anti 
gospel. This is not saying, obviously in this passage, that you could have never failed. But what instead are you known for? What are you known for? Which is summed up in verse 7 of this same chapter. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So they may not fall into the grace, into a snare of the devil. So here's what this means. If you are asked where you go to church, and you tell them, and they say, who are the pastors there? And you say, me or Wayne or Lucas, and they go, Lucas? He's a Christian? That's the problem. You mean he's a Christian? He's a pastor? Are you serious? Do you see? That's the problem if our reputation of what we are known for is not godliness. Not perfection. But that we do not have a pattern of being sinful. By the way, just to test this a little bit, the same calling is on your life as a believer as well. What are you known for? You should be known for godliness. Not perfection, but godliness. That when you sin, you repent of it. People know that you repent of it. Now, why would this be so important, though, for our elders? Well, let me give you a couple of reminders from last week. Hebrews 13, 7. says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider, weigh, look upon their outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. First Peter chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. If I am a person who is known for being something other than godly, how could I ever ask you to imitate my faith? You want to know how to love your wife well? Here's the calling on my life as an elder. You want to know how to love your wife well? Come look at how I love my wife. <laughs> Do you feel the weight of that? You want to know how to be a godly father? Come see how I father my children. Do you want to know how to godly disagree with somebody? Come see how I... Do you feel the weight of this? That's what I'm called to do. And so, this idea of being blameless means that you cannot be an example of someone who refuses to repent of obvious patterns of sin in your life. So, most commentators and theologians will argue that this idea of being above reproach, being blameless, is an umbrella of the qualifications that are to follow. And the next one, the difficult one, is husband of one wife. This is where it gets very interesting. Actually, in your Bible, the fact that the word husband is there is actually not an accurate rendering of the Greek text. It's not. What actually is the correct rendering of the text does not use the word husband at all. Instead, it uses 
this phrase, a one-woman man. That's important. Because I do not believe that Paul is stressing marital status, but instead he is stressing moral purity. The rest of the characteristics flow in the same way. There's no, as one theologian would write, there is no definite article, the husband of one wife. It's without the article. Instead, it translates one woman man. And the absence of the article stresses not circumstances and not marital status, but instead character. It stresses character, moral purity. He begins in this passage discussing a blameless man by starting off with what men are most known to not do well. Sexual purity. He starts off right at the bat and says, this man must be a one-woman man. Most of your translations usually will have a footnote by that phrase, the husband of but one wife, and if you follow the footnote down, it will say, a man of one woman, because that is the proper translation. You go, well, how do we get there? Well, English translators typically have added the husband based on the context, but there are some theologians and translators who argue, and I'm going to be one of those today, that Paul is not speaking to marital status, but to the character of the man. Now, others will say that this text means that no elder pastor shepherd could ever have been divorced. But I will say this, and I say it with all sincerity, If you grew up in the church, I just want you to walk with me on this journey. I cannot say a text says something that the Greek does not say. I can't. It's just not what the passage says. Now, we may arrive there. We may arrive that the moral purity of a man is blemished by a divorce that has no biblical grounds. But let's just be honest. Can Can I just be honest and just have you ponder something? Had Paul wanted to say an elder is a man who has never been divorced, could he not have used the word for divorced? It exists in the Greek. Jesus used it. Paul doesn't here. He could have easily used it had he wanted to, but he didn't. And what I am saying is that the phrase in the Greek says a man who desires to be an elder must be blameless and he must be a one-woman man. It is not a proper translation to say that it says it is a man who has never been divorced. Some of the text says, and I, as your pastor, want to be faithful to the text. Now, having grown up in church, the way I have grown up, and probably the way many of you have grown up, that probably sounds controversial. But like I said, I want to be faithful to the text. So, then you would ask, is the air sucked out of the room yet? <laughs> As for me. <laughs> so what about a man who has been divorced? Does that make him not a one-woman man and therefore not qualified to be an elder? Well, possibly. There are two reasons the scripture gives allowing for divorce. It's a hard teaching. I know it's hard. I know this is hard. But there are only two reasons the scriptures give allowing for a divorce. 
One of those is mired in quite a bit of controversy with regards to the interpretation, while another one is deemed much less controversial. The first is found in 1 Corinthians 7. You don't have to go there. We don't have enough time. That This is not an exhaustive teaching over divorce. If you have questions about that, I am always available to meet with you and talk, but I do want to give you some passages and some observations. The first is found in 1 Corinthians 7, which actually teaches us several things reference marriage. One, you don't have to be married to be an elder. Uh, that would be obvious. Paul makes the case in 1 Corinthians 7 and gives himself as an example. So you don't have to be married. Number two, there is a second charge in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are married, do not get divorced. And in verses 12 through 16, the scripture makes the case that if you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, and that unbelieving spouse abandons or divorces the believing spouse because of their faith, then you are free to remarry. That's the less controversial one. The second and controversial one is Jesus teaching on divorce and sexual morality or adultery in Matthew 19. I'm going to read it to you. In Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 9, it says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And remember, men, they didn't like their wife for some reason. By the way, if you, if you go back to biblical times, women were not held to great esteem. They were basically property, and they disposed of that property when they didn't like them anymore. And I don't know why that would ever happen. But men would get frustrated, and they would just divorce their wife and go marry another one. And that's how the Jews were dealing with it. They would just get a divorce. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The goal of marriage is to stay together teaching of the Bible. Jesus said it himself. From the very beginning, it was not so. A man and woman are joined in marriage. They become one flesh. Anybody interested in having their flesh separated from them? No. That's the meaning of the text. And despite the divorce problem that we have in our country, I've never seen it as an option at Six Flags. Like, like no matter how often you tell me, well, it was for the good, I get it, but, but no one signs up for it. Like, no one says, let me tell you, the best experience of my life was my divorce. No, no one said that. Even people who do not know Jesus don't say, it was the best travel time of my life. They may say things like, it was for the good, or at the end it was better, but no one says it was wonderful. It was joyful. 
Because you can't separate one flesh without damage and pain and regret. And this is the passage that is a bit more controversial. Because I will argue that in the church today, we have this get out of marriage card mentality. That if there's been an affair, I'm out of the marriage. And I would tell you that is not the proper view of marriage. Because if all the scripture discusses our relationship with God as a bride of Christ, and I would ask yourself, when does Jesus divorce the church? Because of its adultery. Instead of saying, I get to get out of jail, I'm done, I'm out. What happened to saying, let's fix it. And let's work on it. And that's why there are many who would hold that this passage is not speaking to sexual immorality the way we think, but it's speaking to the betrothal period and the engagement process of the Jews when they would be engaged to be married. If you remember when Mary finds, or Joseph finds that Mary is with wife, they're betrothed, and he wants to put her away quietly, but that is what it's speaking to. It's not speaking to the official time of marriage, but that is somewhat controversial. I get it, but I would say it this way. The goal of marriage is to stay together through everything. That's why we have vows. And that's the goal. It's always been the goal. Ephesians 5, 22-33 says it this way. You all still with me? Yep. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and is, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with other words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a lot there. Here's the one thing I want you to get. Your marriage is telling a story. Your marriage is telling a story, and that story is the gospel. Your story is the gospel. 
Your marriage is a reflection of Jesus' love for the church. Do you see how verses 22 through 33 all speak about Christ and the church? And this says, I'm telling you a profound mystery that all this refers to the gospel. Your marriage is telling a story about what it means to be a believer in Christ. Being a man who has had more than one wife potentially can blur that picture. So what about if my wife has died or my husband has died? Well, Romans 7 covers that if you, if your spouse has died, you are free to remarried. Or if you were abandoned, as we said, by an unbelieving spouse. Or if your spouse has committed adultery. If you argue that side, you divorce because of sexual immorality. Or if your divorce occurred before your salvation. But just having a biblical reason for divorce doesn't mean you automatically qualify for eldership. There are two sides to every story. So, not long ago, I answered the call at the police department with a friend of mine for an argument in the house. We made the house. Neighbors could hear them yelling at each other. The guy answered the door. When we knocked, me and my partner, he was clearly intoxicated. Uh, we wanted to see his wife to check her welfare. Uh, he refused. Um, and so uh, we wanted to get him to understand that he wasn't able to refuse. Uh, we argued for about a minute and a half at the door. He finally gave in and said, fine, I will let you speak to my wife. When he turned around, uh, my partner and I were quite surprised because in the back of his shoulder blade was a steak knife buried to about the handle. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, um, do you know that you have a knife in your shoulder? And he went, what? And he reached back there and then he went, oh my gosh, she stabbed me. And I was like, okay, now we need to get, now he wanted us to see his wife. We need to come talk to her. Well, we found the wife, and I said, did you stab your husband? And she was bleeding as well, and she said, I did. I stabbed him with that steak knife right after he hit me with a frying pan in the head. He hit me with a frying pan. He went and sat down and watched the game. I'd had enough, so I stabbed him in the back with a steak knife. And I went, well, there you go. There's two sides to end the story. <laughs> and so here's the deal. Just because you come and you say, well, listen, I have a biblical reason for a divorce, and so I'm qualified for eldership. Mm -mm. There are two sides to every story. And eldership, listen church. Eldership is so crucial to get right for the church. And any potential elder who says he has a biblical reason for divorce should be vetted. And that means you have to speak to the spouse that's been divorced. Would that not be And you may be thinking, you're joking, but I'm not. We need to know the truth from all sides. We can't just take someone's word for it and make them a leader in the church who then is responsible for your souls. The role of elders is a serious, serious matter. And I mean nothing should be taken lightly with regards to it. So now, after all of that, let me look and tell you my thoughts how this goes along with the qualifications of being a one-woman man. 
What is the man known for when it comes to his sexual purity? Is he known as a man who takes his marriage seriously? Is he a man who is known to be devoted to his wife, to one woman? Does he understand the picture of the gospel that his marriage is telling? Crucial. And so I would say it this way. And I'm one elder of three. And I cannot imagine anybody becoming an elder in this church who did not have the unanimous support of the elders. But therefore, the seriousness of the marriage covenant in the scriptures and the teaching on being a man above reproach, a blameless man, a man in which the community cannot take hold of anything in his life and make accusations that can harm the church or its witness, makes it difficult for those with previous marriages to be appointed to the position of elder. And there are people who would say, Jason, you should say it's impossible. I won't go there. Let me tell you one reason I won't. Peter denied Jesus to his face. He denied even knowing him and was restored and preached the first message of the church. I can't say it's impossible, but I will say it's difficult. So, what do we do with this as a church? I've got like five minutes left. I want our church to hold marriage high. Amen. I want us to hold it high. This is not to be thought lightly of. Teenagers, who you marry is one of the, if not the most important decision you'll ever make after salvation. With years and years and years and years of ramifications. Marriage must be held high. It may not be held high by our culture, but it should be held high by the church. And so we as a church, we want to hold it high. We want to say this is, this, is, this is forever on earth. This is one woman, one man, through everything and all the difficulties and all the struggles and all the sins. We're going to look to Christ and we're going to stay in the marriage. Because it means something. It means something. It's telling a story. That's what we want to do as church. And simultaneously, we want to hold out grace to those whose marriages are failing. Why did the church some point in history make that the one <laughs> sin that can't be I believe that we can hold marriage high and also extend grace to those who have failed in it. Because would you not want grace held over you? I would. But we don't do one without the other. Marriage is a holy thing. And I don't care what the culture says about it. I care about what Sovereign Life Fellowship says about it. And what the scriptures say about it. 
And in this church, we're going to hold marriage high. And we want to be a church that always practices grace-centered discipleship. To let people know, well, I've been divorced. I've met people who actually said things like this to me before. I'd love to visit your church, but I'm divorced. Okay. <laughs> I mean, how many of our private sins do people not know about? Well, I'm divorced. Great. We have lusters in the church. We got prideful people in our church. We have people who talk too much and sin. <laughs> We got people who lack faith. We got people who don't pray. We got people who don't study the scriptures like that. We got lots of those people. Welcome to the church. Come and learn about Jesus with us. And yet, we also want men in the position of elder to have gospel centered marriages that tell a story of Jesus and his bride. But this only happens when the people in the church believe the gospel. When we believe this, we live it out. And we say, this is what the Bible says about marriage. Well, what about the, what, what about the, this is what the Bible says about marriage. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave and hold to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And what? God has put together, man should not separate, and that is never how it was supposed to be from the beginning. That is what we say about marriage, because the Bible says that about marriage. But the gospel says grace abounds. But it doesn't abound to excuse your sin. It abounds for you to overcome your sin. That's what the gospel I don't care where you've come from or what's happened. There's room in the church for you. And for elders, the standard is high. Not perfect men, but men in which the community and which the people cannot hold things against. Which is why I think it's difficult to have previous marriages and be an elder, but not impossible. Now, of all the characteristics in this, this is not more important or less important than all the other ones. This is a weighty one, and I recognize the difficulty of this. If you feel any struggle with this, please do not leave not understanding what I've said. Find me, talk to me, schedule lunch with me, whatever. I want to make sure that you understand the teachings of Scripture here. I don't want you to walk out condemned, but I do want people to be convicted by the Word of God. And so... If our marriages are supposed to tell the story of the gospel, then it would be good for us. And one of the reasons why we always try to finish every sermon with the definition of the gospel. And boy, I'm happy this is almost over. <laughs> Here's the gospel. That we were born into sin. Nobody had to teach us how to sin. We sinned really, really well. And even while we were sinning, separated from a holy God while we were rebelling against him actively God loved us 
And he loved us so much that he sent Christ to live the blameless life that we could never live and die on a cross in our place so that we who put our faith and our trust in that sacrifice can be brought back into a right relationship with God. And that is the gospel. And people say, well, how do I come to know Christ? How do I become saved? I'll tell you what the Bible says. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, you don't need to come grab my hand to do that, although I'd be happy to do that if you want to talk to me about it. And you can do that now. You can do it on your way home. You can say, I repent and I believe in Christ. And if that is a true confession, your life will never be the same again. Never be the same again. As Keith comes to sing, I recognize again the weightiness of this passage and of the teaching. But I pray we would hear the word of the Lord. And we would hear it. You would not hear it as something I have spoken, but you would see it in the scriptures. And we would align ourselves and our thinking to it, that we would obey the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that I have spoken well of your word, God, that you that I didn't say anything I shouldn't have, God, that I didn't make that I did not say anything, God, that would allow someone to leave condemned here today. So, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fix anything that I didn't do the right way. And, Lord God, that people and myself would be reminded of the holiness of marriage. God, that we would hold it high in our church. And, God, that we would call people to stay together forever. Until they die. And yet, God, I pray that grace would abound in our church. There are broken families and there are broken people, no different than I, who are looking for a place to come and find acceptance as they walk their journey with Christ. And God, I pray that this would be a church they would be welcomed in, no matter their past, God. And that grace would abound, not to excuse sin, to pay for it, and to give them the strength to overcome it. Pray that it would be the hallmark of our church, Lord. God, we do love you. Thank you for this teaching in the scripture. God, calibrate us with it. Help us to obey it, Lord. Help us to respond to it. We love you. It's your name we pray.